Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back to the Tom Hartman Program, broadcasting on commercial radio stations from coast to coast on Sirius XM all across the North American continent, on Pacifica stations across America, Europe, and Africa, on American Forces Radio, and every U.S. military base in the world, and your electronic device via TuneIn, Progressive Voices, Tom Hartman app, and simulcast as television via Free Speech TV Network on Dish Network, DirecTV, and cable systems all over the country. Wow. What an incredible day. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. So much going on. Roger Stone was just indicted. Now we see that there was a criminal conspiracy to commit fraud to elect Donald Trump and Mike Pence as president and vice president. You know, there's a doctrine or practice or whatever the appropriate word is that says that when somebody commits a fraud and is convicted of that fraud, that, that the fruits of that fraud are taken away from them. Very clear, right? You rip somebody off, they get their money back and it comes out of your pocket. So if Donald Trump and Mike Pence are in the White House as a consequence of a clear fraud, the one that apparently involved the foreign government as well, Russia in this case, if they're in office as a consequence of a fraud, is it possible that Hillary Clinton or the Clinton campaign could sue at the Supreme Court alleging fraud and asking that they be installed in the White House by way of taking away the fruit of that fraud from Donald Trump? Now, you know, I realize this is like really reaching out there, but I'm just saying a couple of data points that I want to share with you about Roger Stone and all this stuff. October 7th was the day that WikiLeaks first did their document dump on Hillary Clinton's October 7th, 2016 on Hillary Clinton's emails. It's also the day that the Access Hollywood tape was released. I do not think that's a coincidence. This horrible news about Donald Trump comes out. He's bragging about grabbing women by their crotch. And within hours, WikiLeaks releases all this information that Roger Stone had predicted. In fact, Roger Stone later claimed credit for having correctly predicted it would be October 7th. Right. Okay. In addition, Claire McCaskill just kind of laid out Donald Trump is lying. You know, he said that the reason why that six senators, six Republican senators, voted with the Democrats 
to reopen the government, that the reason why that happened, according to Donald Trump, is that they wanted hurricane relief. Remember this? I mean, he came right out and said this. Oh, yeah, there were six uh, Republicans who voted with the Democrats because they wanted hurricane relief. Those Republican senators, as Claire McCaskill pointed out, were from Alaska. Where was the hurricane in Alaska? Colorado, Tennessee, Utah, Maine, and Georgia. So, you know, is he going to be held to account for this lie? So, you know, what do we do with that? I mean, that's pretty astonishing. Wilbur Ross, the billionaire, offshore banker, member of the cabinet, he's Trump's commerce secretary, comes right out and says, I don't understand why these federal workers are worried. I mean, they can borrow against their paycheck, can't they? Apparently, he thinks that federal workers all have like the same line of credit available to them that his children and grandchildren have available to them. It's like, no, they're going to payday lenders. And I mean, a lot of these people are making, you know, 20, 20, 30,000 dollars a year. They're going to payday lenders. And particularly when they're a single family, a single head of household in their family, they're going to payday lenders and they're having to pay 400 percent interest because of the policies of the Trump administration and Republicans prior to him. This is mind-boggling. The billionaires are actively, actively, and have been since 1981, since the beginning of the Reagan administration, actively working to turn America into a banana republic. Because it's a whole lot easier to extract enormous amounts of money from a banana republic. It's a whole lot easier to have a very, very corrupt political infrastructure when you're a banana republic. How do we stop the billionaires from turning us into a banana republic? Or is it already a done deal? And if it is, how do we roll it back? Just look at this history. Since 1980, this is the impact, the consequences of Reaganomics, trickle-down economics, top tax rate below 50%. This whole shtick that Ronald Reagan brought us in 1981. In 1981, the median wealth... Median means half the countries above it and half the countries below it, right? The median wealth of black and Latino families was around $10,000. And the median wealth of a white family was in the neighborhood of $80,000. Today, the white family has a median wealth of around $147,000. The median wealth of a black family, $3,600. Latino family, $6,600. Since 1983... Median wealth for all U.S. households has dropped by 3% when you adjust it for inflation. Over the same time period, the median black family saw their wealth drop by more than half. Meanwhile, the number of households with $10 million or more went up by 850%. In fact, if this path continues by 2050... The median white family will have $174,000 in wealth, which is pretty much where they are right now. Well, they'll be a little above that. They're at $147 right now. They go up to $174. Latino wealth will be at $8,600, slight increase. Black median wealth will go down to $600. I mean, this is like, you know, the billionaires are bringing us an economy that makes money off racial economic inequality. Chuck Collins writing about this for The Guardian, by the way. Chuck is an absolutely brilliant guy. 
And Wilbur Ross is like, well, I don't, I don't know what the problem is. They literally are turning us into a banana republic. The world's billionaires, best leaven over at Vanity Fair writing. After Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said that, you know, we should tax income over $10 million at 70%, the Davos crowd had something to say about this. Scott Minard, who's a, the chief, global chief investment officer at Guggenheim Partners, says, it's scary. By the time we get to the presidential election, this is going to gain more momentum. He says he'll be personally affected. In other words, he makes more than $10 million a year, right? And apparently barely scrapes by on his 10 million bucks a year. He says, I think the likelihood that a 70% tax rate or something like that becomes policy is actually very real. It's scary. Ken Mollis, whose net worth hit a billion dollars last April, claimed that Ocasio-Cortez's idea would be disastrous for the economy. He says, you have to incentivize people. We have to have two people in the family working. Like, if you don't have that, you don't have an economy? Really? Steven Schwartzman, he's this, uh, he's, you know, at Davos. He's worth $13 billion. Back when uh, Obama wanted to close the tax loophole that allows Steven Schwartzman and his friends, this is just for private equity firms like Mitt Romney's company, they only have to pay 15% income tax on their income because they call it carried interest. And when Obama proposed raising that 15% maximum tax that Steve Schwartzman pays, which, by the way, Obama ultimately didn't do. He wasn't able to pull it off. Because Congress wasn't able to pull it off. But when it was proposed, when President Obama proposed it, Steve Schwartzman said, it's war! It's like when Hitler invaded Poland in 1939! This is the same guy who has Patti LaBelle and Gwen Stefani, along with trapeze artists, live camels, and acrobats, perform for his parties. No, I'm not making that up. This is the world of our billionaires. And then Lara Trump. Is it Uday or Kusei's wife? Uday is Don Jr. and Kusei is Eric, right? In any case, Lara Trump, the wife of Eric, the person who was caught on tape offering Amorosa $15,000 a year, a, a job where she doesn't do anything, if she would just sign that non-disclosure agreement, she said yesterday, listen, uh, this is, it's not fair to you, and we all get that, but this is so much bigger than any one person. I mean, it's a little bit of pain, but it's going to be for the future of our country. And their children, the people who are losing their paychecks and their children and their grandchildren and generations after them will thank them for their sacrifice right now. I know it's hard. I know people have families, they have bills to pay, they have mortgages, they have rents that are due, but the president is trying every single day to come up with a good solution here. This is our one opportunity. So I would just tell them, please stay strong. We appreciate everything that they're sacrificing. We're behind you. Right, Laura. Wilbur Ross, he says, I don't really understand why people can't pay their bills who are federal workers. He says, because as I mentioned before, the obligations that they would undertake, say borrowing from a bank or credit union, are in effect federally guaranteed. This is mind boggling. He says, put it in perspective. He says, you're only talking about 800,000 workers. While I feel sorry for the individuals that have hardship cases, 800,000 workers, if they never got their pay, which is not the case, they'll eventually get it. But even if they never got it, you're talking about a third of 1% of our GDP. So it's not like it's a gigantic number overall. That's your billionaire commerce sector. This is what happens when you have a billionaire cabinet and a billionaire president who are being 
cheered on by a news network owned by a billionaire. And half the people who are commenting on this are people who work for like Reason Magazine and things like that. I'm talking about on CNN, MSNBC, whatnot, who are funded by billionaires, right-wing billionaires. They are trying to break our government. Campbell Robertson has a great piece in the Today's New York Times. It starts out talking about Gustavo Costa. Gustavo has this rare expertise, critical for everything from space travel to fracking. And he's out of work right now. He works for a contractor. He is not going to get his paycheck made up. But he works for NASA as a contractor. And he says, uh, I don't know. I don't know what to do. Campbell Robertson uh, in New York Times writing, these are vital, high-skilled federal workers, and there are usually companies that are willing to offer them two or three times as much money. But they like the idea, this John Kennedy idea, of service to country. And this has been the thing, and NASA calls it the mission, right? Why do people work for NASA when they can make more money working for SpaceX? Because of the mission. I'm serving my country. I'm part of something bigger than me. And what Trump is now saying, and what the billionaire class is now saying, and what Fox News has been saying for 30 years, is no. Working for the government means you've sold out. Working for the government means you become you know, part of the problem and not the solution. It means you're, you're the enemy. Now, how long are people going to want to continue working for our government? And what happens to our government when the really competent people leave and they get replaced by really incompetent people? Well, if you want to know the answer to that, just you know, look at the EPA or the Interior Department at senior levels. At the, at, the, at the level of the cabinet officers right now. They're, I mean, they're, they're starting to hemorrhage scientists. Why would the billionaires want to destroy the federal government? Why would they want to cause Americans to think that it's not a noble thing to work for NASA or for the EPA? Why would they want Americans to even think that people who go to work for the government are losers? Why would they inflict this lasting damage on the government of the United States, on we the people? Could it be that it, they're doing it because they actually hate the idea, the egalitarian idea of America? That they want to end the experiment that you know, George Washington and Thomas Jefferson started, that we've been fine-tuning for 240 years? Is that why? What other possible reason could these billionaires have other than hating the, the, the core idea of this country? And what do we do about it? How do you stop billionaires who have, they've seized the federal judiciary, their federalist society is teeing up all the judges that Mitch McConnell is running like an assembly line through Congress? How do you stop them? In my mind, the way to stop them is to have a major, a major wave, essentially, you know, activism, as Bernie calls it, a political revolution. What do you think? Hey, you know, you're going to start hearing nonstop weight loss commercials everywhere. And every time you do, I want you to think about Riduzone. It's the only weight loss product I endorse and the one that worked for my wife. Louise wanted to lose a little weight last summer. She read about university research and how one molecule helps regulate appetite. Riduzone is designed to boost levels of that one molecule and your metabolism, too, so you stop craving the wrong foods like too many holiday sweets and you burn calories faster. 
With her appetite and cravings under control, she said losing weight was easy. She has more energy on her hikes and she looks amazing. Listen, when diet and exercise aren't enough, get the only weight loss product I endorse, non-prescription, FDA-accepted Riduzone. While supplies last, to use the promo code TOM, T-H-O-M, and receive 30% off a pack of three bottles plus free shipping. Go to Riduzone.com. That's R-I-D-U-Z-O-N-E. R-I-D-U-Zone.com. Riduzone.com. Use the promo code TOM. Riduzone.com. Periodically, we do these deep dive conversations with people who just have made extraordinary contributions to our public knowledge and dialogue and debate. And we call this Conversations with Great Minds. We're doing one right now with Kate Pickett. She is professor of epidemiology, research champion for justice and equality, deputy director of the Center for Future Health at the University of York, the co-author with Richard Wilkinson of several books, including their latest that was just released, The Inner Level, How More Equal Societies Reduce Stress, Restore Sanity, and Improve Everyone's Well-Being. The website is equalitytrust.org.uk. Twitter handle Prof K-E Pickett, P-I-C-K-E-T-T. Professor Pickett, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to join you. It is so great to talk with you. I have been quoting the work that you and Richard Wilkinson have been doing for, for years. I've quoted it in my writing. I've quoted it in my books. I've quoted it on radio and TV. I, I think it's just such important work. Let's start at the beginning. First, let's define inequality. What is inequality? How does it come about in our societies? Well, what Richard and I have been studying for a long time is income inequality. So that is the gap between the rich and the poor in different societies. And it's not the same in every society. In some countries, the rich are much, much richer than the poor than they are in other countries. Um, We look at income inequality because it's, it's quite easy to get hold of those data. Wealth inequality is obviously important as well. But we think of these as, you might think of them as sort of the vertical inequality of society, how steeply the social pyramid is structured, how big the social distances are between those at the bottom and those at the top, and those between everybody on all the different rungs of the ladder as well. So it's a little bit different to thinking about what we might think of as horizontal inequalities like gender inequality, ethnic inequality, religious inequalities, language inequalities, disabilities, etc. These are the vertical inequalities, the structure of society, the distances between us. What are the principal consequences of inequality? How long have you got, Tom? Because yeah, no, I've, they, they I've, I've read your books. And, they are immense and extensive. Yeah. Um, there are effects on our health both physical and mental. There are effects on our relationships, both our intimate relationships and um, more broadly in society, things like levels of trust and civic participation, levels of violence, etc. There are effects on the environment. There are effects on our economy. There are effects on children's life chances. Can, Kate, can, we, extensive. can we pick some of these out or, or define some of these? For example, how is the fact that the guy living down the street from me is worth $3 billion Actually, in the case of Phil Knight with Nike, probably worth a hell of a lot more than that. And he does live right down the street. And I'm not, you know, I'm not worth millions of dollars. How does that translate into the specifics? How does that translate into higher crime rates? How does that translate into less social cohesion? How does that cause me to be less trusting of my next door neighbor who's not a billionaire? It's quite simple, really. We are social animals. We have evolved to be extremely sensitive to how other people see us and how we think about ourselves in relationship 
to other people. Mm-hmm. And so anything that sort of strengthens the grip of what class and, and status anxieties, the grip that they have on us, anything that makes those worse tends to make us feel worse. It's a source of chronic stress. It's a source of feeling devalued or disrespected. And so it's those social links, those sort of psychosocial links, our evolved sensitivity to class and status that mean we suffer much more when those status issues become much more salient and more important. Back in the 70s, when I was living in Michigan, there was a study that came out of, uh, I think it was done at Michigan State University. I don't have the study. I never, in fact, I've never been able to find it, but I remember vividly hearing this uh, radio story about it out of WKAR, the campus station, um, and I think it was on NPR. You know, squirrels build nests out of leaves in trees, and in the winter, when the leaves go away, you can see all the squirrels' nests. And so what they did was, and you know, squirrels are territorial, they took a, a couple, two or three squirrels' nests in an area that had 10 or 15 of them, and physically went up and added about 20% more mass, more leaves to their nests, and then just sat back and said, let's see what happens. And what happened was that all the other squirrels, or the majority of the other squirrels in the area, started expanding the size of their nests. They were speculating, is this the way that squirrels communicate to each other, that they think a heavy winter is coming, or does this have to do with social status? But isn't, isn't that sort of a variation on what you're talking about, that when we see people around us who have bigger homes than we do, it makes us feel an urge to get to there? Exactly. I think your squirrels are a lovely analogy, actually, and um, we have evolved to have very much the same sorts of feelings. But the key thing is, is that it's not the same in every country, in every state, in every society. In some places, those feelings about how you're doing relative to other people matter more than in other places, and so are a more important cause of ill health or problems of violence or whatever it is. And it's the degree of inequality in those different societies that is driving how much people feel that their relative status matters. So if, so in- if, if the billionaire down the street from me has $1 billion and thus has this giant compound and has a yacht out in the, you know, in the harbor or whatever, I see that house and I go, oh, gee, you know, I, I feel diminished by that. But if he suddenly has $10 billion, I mean, the Koch brothers, they went from being worth $10 billion a decade ago to being worth $80 billion now. If he's suddenly worth $10 billion, I don't see that much difference, I don't think. You know, he still has that big mansion. How does that increase in inequality cause me or, you know, the average person to feel worse about myself and about society? How does that drive up things like STD rates and teenage pregnancy rates and crime and stuff like that? Because we are all aware of the structure of society, and it might not be that that particular person having X amount more billion dollars affects you personally, but the fact that you're living in a society where lots of people are now earning those huge amounts of money, and other people have less chance of of doing so, and so that changes the game for everybody. So we're all affected by inequality. The rich are affected by it as well, because you might be really literally just down the road from that billionaire, but not making quite as much yourself. And so you you know that in the eyes of the world, your status is a bit less than that person's status. And so it matters. Let's break out some of these, the social effects of the gap between rich and poor. First of all, you said a minute ago that in some societies, that wealth gap has a greater impact on the average person than in other societies. What accounts for that difference? Is it simply how, how stark that difference is? Yes. Yes, we think that that's right. So, um, so it's not religion and, uh, or society or culture. No. It's, this is a human no, thing. Exactly. 
this is a very robust body of evidence now. I think you had my co-author on your program probably about 10 years ago mm-hmm. when we were first starting to write publicly about these relationships. And since then, the research has really deepened and intensified and broadened. And it's now very clear that these are causal processes, you know, that when the level of inequality changes in some place, then things like levels of child well-being change and the sort of the pathways from one to the other have have been really cleared up a lot. But what I, I think it would be really good to focus on this afternoon is is mental health, actually. Sure, because Go for it. you know I'm r- really in the UK. We are in the middle of a, a mental health epidemic, and you know my sense is that you are in the US as well. Yes, you know I've been looking at some statistics. I see that Gallup says that about eighty percent of Americans feel stressed every day. 20% live with mental illness. Um, and then there's another survey showing that over half of your young people have a mental health issue. And we've got very similar levels um, in the UK. And that's a truly astonishing level of distress. And so trying to understand why some countries have this epidemic of mental illness and other places, you know, rich, developed countries in other parts of the world, they don't have that. Well, isn't the difference between the U.K. and the U.S. on the one hand and Germany, France, Finland, Denmark, whatever it may be on the other hand, that those countries never had Reagan or Thatcher. They never had neoliberalism introduced, you know, injected into the bloodstream of their society in a really, really big way that led to an explosion of incredible wealth and, and an exacerbation of poverty. Isn't it? Doesn't it just come right down to that, 1978 to 1980? Well, exactly. That's when we saw our levels of income inequality rise dramatically, and they have never yet come down again. You know, there are little ups and downs along the way, but we saw that huge rise with neoliberal ideologies. But I think that the point that we should be thinking about really is that back in the day when Thatcher and Reagan were deciding on their economic policies, they could truly believe that what they were putting in place was going to be for the greater good. They had theories that, you know, trickle-down economics would um, improve people's lives, that, you know, deregulating everything and freeing up markets would improve everybody's lives. But now we know that that's not true, and we see the evidence that that rise in inequality has actually caused these huge levels of mental distress, physical health problems, the destruction of civic society. So we have evidence in front of us now that can allow us to make different choices, and we're not, we're not working in the, in the dark anymore. You know, we've got evidence upon which we can build policy. Reagan and Thatcher were in the thrall of the Chicago School and the Austrian School, you know, Hayek, and actually believed that if they could increase inequality, if they could make the rich richer, somehow that would all translate down to average working people. In the 1880s in the United States, there was a fairly large body of I was going to say literature, it was more propaganda, promoting the idea of things like deregulation, tax cuts, et cetera, et cetera. And the theory was called the horse and sparrow theory. You can can Google this. You probably already know about this. 1880 to 1920, because back then everybody had horses. You know, the sparrows eat horse poop, right? They eat the undigested oats out of the horse poop or horse dung. And if you feed more oats to the horses, more will pass through that they can't digest rapidly and the sparrows will get fatter and be happier. And this was literally called the horse and sparrow theory about why we need to be feeding the financially fat people in our society or entities. I mean, that became actually a point of debate in Teddy Roosevelt's presidency. He took that on. And then Franklin Roosevelt again, and everybody figured out that that was just complete BS. 
and now we're back to it again. How does that happen? How does that happen? Um, I think it happens when we allow our policymaking to be captured by vested interests and when we have a reduction in democracy, people feeling that they can participate in policymaking. You know, we shouldn't be making our social policy, our tax policy, our welfare policy on the basis of the vested interest of the top 1% or, or the very rich. We should be thinking about how we create societies that optimize well-being for the largest number of people. And I think that involves getting more people engaged in the political process and saying what it is they do need and what it is they do want. And I think also we need to stop trusting that, you know, those with vested interests have our best interests at heart, or indeed the best interests of the institutions they work in. In our new book, we've got a chart that shows if you look at shareholder return in large companies, you get the best shareholder return among those where the chief executives are paid less than average compared to those where they're paid more. So I think there's a certain amount of misbusting that needs to go on about who it is who should be helping us think about the policies we need and the way our societies should be moving. And I think worldwide there is um, a growing movement towards thinking about alternative economic models, thinking about outcomes that we want that would be different to simply growth in GDP, gross domestic product, but instead growth in well-being. Yeah. I think there is a movement towards this. Yeah, the story out of Bhutan has certainly had an enduring kind of seductive quality. I don't know how true it is, but uh, you know, the, the national happiness index or gross national happiness index. Kate, in the few minutes we have left here, how do we break this grip that massive inequality has seized us with? The last time this happened was the late 1920s, early 1930s in both your country and mine. And what broke that grip was a massive worldwide depression followed by a war that upended the entire economic and political order. What's it going to take this time? I think what might be really key is that achieving greater equality is going to be a precondition to solving climate change. You know, we are going to have to find ways to rein in consumerism and status consumption and get everybody to feel that they are working together towards a common goal. So the need to deal with climate change might be an impetus for us creating more equal societies. I think also this recognition that the pursuit of economic growth on its own doesn't produce high levels of population well-being and damages the environment is another reason for us to take tackling inequality seriously. But the hopeful thing that I would like to end with really is that there are a whole range of things that societies can do to improve their equality. It doesn't have to be redistribution, taxes and welfare. It can be through economic democracy and creating smaller income differences before tax. It doesn't matter which pathway you choose to greater equality. It just matters that you get there. You're talking about and things like co-ops versus the, corp exactly. the traditional corporate form? Exactly. And it's a win-win situation because if you reduce inequality, you'll be improving human well-being and you'll be enabling that transition towards more green and sustainable economies that we're obviously going to have to make very, very soon. But how do you so break this? I think this is a hopeful set of research ideas 
that provides an answer to some of the conundrums we find ourselves in. I agree, and I totally support all those. But how do you, I mean, Jimmy Carter, former President Carter on this program a couple of years ago said, right up, I mean, you can find it on YouTube. He said, the United States is no longer a democracy. We have become an oligarchy. The work that was done out of Columbia University a couple of years ago, the probability of the wishes of the average American getting economically, getting passed into law are the same as random noise. Yeah, yeah. I think the key here is education and our young people. And I think our young people, both here in the USA and in in the UK, they give me hope. I think they are open-minded, they are progressive, they are creative. They know the world needs to change. And so I think if we can do a good job of educating them, then that will be the foundations for us um, seeing some real change. I mean, I don't know if you've heard, but we know that if in the UK, if we took our Brexit vote again, we would get a different answer simply because more young people have crossed the voting age threshold. Right. So as our young people grow older, I think we will see changes, positive changes in the directions our societies are taking. That's a hopeful thing. And I, I, was, I particularly want to tip my hat to you guys for the work you did looking at on a state-by-state comparison here in the United States a number of years ago. I've used that many, many times. It's just brilliant work. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Kate Pickett. The new book, along with Richard Wilkinson, is The Inner Level, How More Equal Societies Reduce Stress, Restore Sanity, and Improve Everyone's Well-Being. Equalitytrust.org.uk. Thank you. Thank you, Kate. Thanks for having me. Thank you. My pleasure. Great talking. Here's a New Year's resolution that's easy to keep. Make 2019 your most comfortable and productive year ever by getting yourself an X chair. I used to constantly feel uncomfortable throughout the workday until I realized I was spending thousands of hours sitting in the wrong chair. So follow my example and ditch that no-name superstore chair and trade up to the X chair. I've been raving about how much I love my X chair for, geez, years. Well, if you're on the fence about buying one, here's great news. Now you can finance the purchase of your X chair for as little as $30 a month. When you sit in it, you'll understand why I love my X chair so much. X chair is on sale now for $100 off. Just go to X chair Tom. That's T-H-O xchairtom.com now. That's xchairtom.com, T-H-O-M. Or call 1-844-4-X-CHAIR. X-CHAIR comes with a 30-day, no questions asked, guarantee of complete satisfaction. Go to xchairtom.com now and use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, to get a free footrest. xchairtom.com. Today in the Tom Harvin Book Club, we're featuring The Inner Level by Richards Wilkinson and Kate Pickett. It's a new book. The subtitle is How More Equal Societies Reduce Stress, Restore Sanity, and Improve Everyone's Well-Being. This is in Chapter 6, The Misconception of Meritocracy, page 161. Boris Johnson, the former mayor of London who became foreign secretary in Theresa May's conservative government in 2016, was educated at Eton and Oxford. Giving the Margaret Thatcher lecture to a think tank in 2013, he articulated the view that economic equality will never be possible because some people are simply too stupid to catch up with the rest of society. Quote, whatever you may think of the value of IQ tests, it is surely relevant to a conversation about equality that as many as 16% of our species have an IQ below 85. Comparing society to a box of cornflakes, he praised inequality for creating the conditions under which the brightest triumph. Quote, the harder you shake the pack, the easier it will be for some cornflakes to get to the top, end quote. Inequality, quote, is essential for the spirit of envy and keeping up with the Joneses that is, like greed, a valuable spur to economic activity. 
Whether or not Johnson is quite as clever a cornflake as he presumably likes to think, he certainly is not in command of the facts. Nobel Prize winning economists, as well as the OECD and IMF, have shown how inequality, far from spurring on economic growth, leads to stagnation and instability. Social mobility is reduced where income inequality is greatest and far from inspiring innovation. It turns out that there are actually slightly more patents granted per head of population in more equal countries. And as we've seen in the previous chapters, there's also the undeniable human cost of our fixation with keeping up with the Joneses. But Boris is far from alone in his misconceptions about the relationships between inequality and ability. The idea that people are naturally endowed with differences in ability, intelligence, or talent, and that those differences then determine how far up the social ladder they reach, is a powerful popular justification for social hierarchy. The presumption is that we live in a meritocracy in which the key to status is ability. We think of society as shaped like a pyramid. The supposition is that most people are near the bottom or only a little above it because the bulk of the population lack the special talents that we imagine people need to get to the top. The belief that differences in ability are the main influence on where people end up on the social ladder is so strong that we tend to judge everyone's personal worth, ability, and intelligence by their position in society. Nor is this confined simply to how we judge others. It also affects how people see themselves. Those at the top often believe that they're there because they are naturally endowed with plenty of the right stuff just as many of those near the bottom think that their low status reflects a lack of ability. That picture, however, is not supported by the latest scientific evidence. First, research now shows that a very major part of what happens to people and where they end up is the result of totally unpredictable influences and occurrences amounting to pure luck. Second, aside from luck, the most important links that exist between ability and status operate in the opposite direction of that imagined by most people. Rather than different endowments of talents determining position in the hierarchy, it's much nearer the truth to say that position in the hierarchy determines abilities, interests, and talents. But let's address luck first. Whether or not we consider ourselves successful, most of us can probably look back across our own life histories and recognize the roles that luck and chance have played in getting us to where we are. We're perhaps lucky with schools or teachers, with the questions on an important exam, with some nameless person dealing with university applications, or we got on well with an interviewer when applying for a job. Perhaps a chance meeting was important, or perhaps an opportunity for promotion came up unexpectedly. Finding a life partner is just as important for our quality of life as our career or income, but we are far happier to acknowledge that chance and luck played a key role in meeting that person than we are in acknowledging luck's role in our career. No one minds mentioning the chance meeting, the circumstances that put you both at ease with each other, or the shared interest that might easily have gone unrecognized. The role of chance makes people's lives highly unpredictable. Although there are huge social class biases and social mobility, there are at the same time vast numbers of people moving up or down the social ladder in ways that even the most detailed analysis of parenting and ability fail to predict. Similarly, although there are differences of perhaps 10 years in the average life expectancy of upper and lower social classes, that explains very little of the individual differences in how long people live. Inevitably, some rich people will die young and some people live in poverty to a great age. And as some public health mavericks used to say, even if you exercised, ate healthy, and didn't smoke, your most likely cause of death was still heart disease. In addition to all this, there may be a large element of chance in whatever our experiences, including subjective experiences, trigger the kind of epigenetic changes affecting subsequent development that we discussed in the last chapter. 
Just as the development of weather systems is sometimes said to be so chaotic it can be changed by the flapping of a butterfly's wings, so what amounts to chance events at the social or the cellular level are now thought to play a very substantial part in our lives. So much so, the scientists have worried that if random chance and luck are such important determinants of whether or not an individual becomes sick, gets good exam results, or has a good marriage, it becomes difficult to understand causal pathways at all. The book, The Inner Level, by Wilkinson and Pickett. Tom Harbin here with you, and on the line with us is uh, Dr. Richard Wolf. And Professor Wolf is an economist. He's the co-founder of Democracy at Work. Info is the website. R.D. Wolf with two Fs. Dot com is the other website. He's the author of numerous books. His most recent, Capitalism's Crisis Deepens, and you can tweet him at Prof Wolf. P R O F W O L F F. Professor Wolf, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Tom. Glad to be here. Let me set you up with a juxtaposition. We have billionaires in Davos, on the one hand, who are like Wilbur Ross, the billionaire commerce secretary in Trump's cabinet, said, well, I don't know what's wrong with these federal workers. Why can't they just go to their bank or credit union and get a loan? So you've got that, you know, this kind of cluelessness. And then you've got another billionaire in Davos who's quoted as saying that if Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's suggestion of a 70% tax rate over $10 million happened, what would happen? to two wage earner households. We have to have two people working in a household to keep the economy humming. So we got that on the one hand. We've got these bizarre, clueless oligarchs meeting in Davos. And then on the other hand, you've got the country that Mike Pence pointed out, that Venezuela has the second largest oil reserves in the world, outside, you know, second to the Middle East, the region of the Middle East. And, you know, we're starting to seriously mess with not just their economy, we've been doing that for some time, but also with their government. We're not recognizing Maduro's re-election and we're saying, no, this 35-year-old guy who's, you know, into libertarianism and billionaires, he's actually the one we're going to recognize as the president of Venezuela. Do you see a common theme here? Yes, I see a system that is exploding, that is producing these kinds of absurd contradictions and very, very extreme behavior. It's been coming, it's been noted for quite a while. The cluelessness that you refer to, it also blew my mind, particularly Commerce Secretary Ross's commentary. It shows you that the divide is so severe that literally the people on the two sides not only don't understand each other, but what is much worse is they're able to understand the other one in terms of fantastic make-believe, and that's a sign of severe disruption of society. And I think for me, it's sort of the last milestone on a society that cannot hold itself together and seems to imagine that that's not a problem. Although, I have been reading papers that have circulated at the Davos conference that indicate quite a few big investors are aware, have overcome this divide, and are warning the folks gathered there, these super rich politicians and CEOs and so on, that the social divide is threatening everything they have and everything they do and so there are even panels on that subject, and those panels then have a few people saying, look, this is terrible, we have to deal with the social divide. 
and then the other side, like Ross and the politicians particularly, needing to pretend everything is rosy and lovely. It, it's quite a spectacle. For me as an economist, it's clear to me that the society is polarizing. It's clear to me that capitalism's justification for most of the post-World War II period was the claim that it created and sustained a large middle class. If you're a society that has held together around that idea and you are systematically eviscerating the middle class, you ought to be worried about where that leads. Yeah. Somebody tweeted to me this morning that the Roman Republic and the Greek Republic both lasted about 250 years. Is that the period of time it takes for corruption to finally overtake a democratic or quasi-democratic experiment? Is that just too facile? Is that just too cute? Or is there something to that? Oh, no, I think there's something to it, and I think it links perfectly, which is probably why it occurred to you, to the extraordinary behavior in Venezuela. You have an election there, like most elections, it's got its problems and its flaws and all the rest, but you have an election, you have an elected government, the United States doesn't like the elected government, so it is deciding to give the government to somebody else. And this in a country where the United States tried with the previous leader, Hugo Chavez, to bump him out of office, only to have that come back and destroy the relationship between that country uh, and the United States. Maybe the phrase, make America great again, literally means going back to the old colonial imperialist days of manifest destiny in the United States. But this is a society that you know, can't control itself internally, and at that moment, instead of facing that problem, is overreaching around the world, trying to control what happens in Afghanistan, what happens in Iraq, what happens in Syria, and now opening yet another front. It does remind you of Greece, Rome, the British Empire, at a certain point imploding because it cannot face its real problems and keeps overreaching until it literally destroys itself. Now, there are those who suggest that the British Empire, since you mentioned that, it would be a fascinating thought experiment or maybe a science fiction novel to wonder what would have happened if after the election here in November of 2016, the European Union said, well, you know, Hillary Clinton got three million more votes. We're going to recognize her as the legitimately elected president of the United States. We're not going to talk to Trump. But, you know, in any case, back to the British Empire, it has been suggested. In fact, I don't even remember where I learned this or read this many years ago, that the reason that the British Empire survived essentially its own collapse, you know, with, you know, after World War One or World War Two uh, or in that region, the first part of the 20th century, that time region, was because they turned to democratic socialism, because they built out a national health care system, because they built a strong social welfare system, because the loss of empire brought with it a major economic and political shock, and that by cushioning the blow at the bottom, they increased the resilience of their country and were able to make it through. And in fact, I was talking with Kate Pickett, you know, who wrote The Spirit Level, and, you know, she and Richard Wilkinson do this brilliant stuff on inequality. And she was talking about, you know, how this has been ripped apart, basically, since Maggie Thatcher came in, making Britain all the more vulnerable. What are your thoughts on that? And is there a cautionary tale for us here? Absolutely, and I think it's true of a number of other European countries. The crisis of the Great Depression laid waste to France, to Germany, to Italy, to most of continental Europe, and it kind of provoked in those societies a fundamental split. 
Some of them went to the left, like France. Some of them went to the right, like Germany and Italy. But the, the capitalism as we knew it was obliterated in those societies in favor of either a leftist solution of a kind of general democratic socialism, or in the case of Germany and Italy, fascism, and then the war between these polarities happened. That's why I say you have to be extraordinarily blind not to see the danger in what is happening domestically, now compounded by the United States being at war in half a dozen countries and adding new uh, military conflicts. If the military in Venezuela does not go with his new guy declaring himself the leader, what is going to happen there? And what is the United States going to do once it is now implicitly involved in what may become a civil war? Nobody's asking the questions. There's this knee-jerk political behavior trying to cope with this or that aspect without facing that the underlying economic system is not working to sustain the kind of economy Americans have come to expect. And that's a recipe for success. Yeah. And I would add to that that the political system has been corrupted now by the people who have corrupted the economic system. Brilliant stuff. Dr. Richard Wolf. it's always great talking with you. Thanks so much for dropping by today. Okay. And talk to you again soon. Indeed. DemocracyAtWork.info and rdwolf with two fs.com are the websites. You can tweet him at profwolf, P-R-O-F-W-O-L-F-F. His most recent book, Capitalism's Crisis Deepens. We'll be right back. Everyone's talking about the decline in stock values over the last few months. If you've been listening to Lynette Zhang's YouTube show, you probably aren't surprised by the fall. Her fact-based research on markets, currencies, and economics is second to none. And her presentations have pointed to most every major downfall we've recently seen in the U.S. economy. Her video titled Just Before the Crash showed people the exact patterns to look out for and now has over 210,000 views and counting. Lynette Zhang has been on my show and works with my friends at ITM Trading. I highly recommend looking them up as they are pioneers in creating wealth protection strategies with gold and silver. If you're a strategic investor looking to protect your wealth or just hedge against the most volatile markets since 2007, then call my friends at ITM Trading at one 888 gold Ask for their free gold protection guide and join the top 1% who are now accumulating very specific types, dates, and qualities of physical gold and silver. Call 1-888-OWN-GOLD. That's 1-888-O-W-N-G-O-L-D. Our book today is uh, Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism and Other Arguments for Economic Independence by Kristen Godsey. And this is from the introduction titled, You Might Be Suffering from Capitalism. The argument of this book can be summed up succinctly. Unregulated capitalism is bad for women. And if we adopt some ideas from socialism, women will have better lives. If done properly, socialism leads to economic independence, better labor conditions, better work-family balance, and yes, even better sex. Finding a way into a better future requires learning from the mistakes of the past, including a thoughtful assessment of the history of 20th century state socialism in Eastern Europe. That's it. If you like the idea of such outcomes, then come along for an exploration of how we might change things. If you're dubious because you don't understand why capitalism as an economic system is uniquely bad for women, and if you doubt that there could ever be anything good about socialism, this short treatise will provide some illumination. If you don't give a wit about women's lives because you're a gynophobic right-wing internet troll, save your money and go back to your parents' basement right now. This isn't the book for you. Of course, some might argue that unregulated capitalism sucks for almost everyone, but I want to focus on how capitalism disproportionately harms women. 
Competitive labor markets discriminate against those whose reproductive biology makes them primarily responsible for childbearing. Today, this means humans who get pink hats in the hospital and the letter F next to the name on the birth certificate, as if we've already failed by not coming into the world as a boy. Competitive labor markets also devalue those expected to be the primary caregivers of children. Although societal attitudes have evolved in this regard, our idealization of motherhood means that most of us still believe that baby needs mama a whole lot more than papa, at least until the child is old enough to play sports. Others will argue that unregulated capitalism is not bad for all women. Yes, for those women lucky enough to sit at the top of the income distribution, the system works pretty well. Although women at the executive level still face gender pay gaps and remain underrepresented in leadership positions, on the whole, things aren't too shabby for the Sheryl Sandbergs of the world. Of course, sexual harassment still hinders progress, even for those at the top, and too many women believe that if you want to run with the big dogs, you may have to suck it up and ignore the groping and unwanted advances. And race plays an important role as well. White women do a lot better in aggregate than do women of color. But when we look at society as a whole, on average, women are comparatively worse off in countries where markets are less encumbered by regulation, taxation, and public enterprises than they are in nations where state revenues support greater levels of redistribution and larger social safety nets. Choose your data source, and you find the same story. Unemployment and poverty plague women with children. Employers discriminate against women without children because they might have them in the future. In the United States in 2013, women over the age of 65 suffered from poverty at much greater rates than men and dominated those in the category of extreme poverty. Globally, women face higher rates of economic deprivation. Women are often the last to be hired and the first to be fired in cyclical downturns. And when they do find employment, bosses pay them less than men. When states need to slash government spending on education, health care, or old age pensions, mothers, daughters, sisters, and wives must pick up the slack diverting their energy to care for the young, the sick, and the elderly. Capitalism thrives on women's unpaid labor in the home because women's care work supports lower taxes. Lower taxes mean higher profits for those already at the top of the income ladder, mostly men. But capitalism was not always so savage. Throughout much of the 20th century, state socialism presented an existential challenge to the worst excesses of the free market. The threat posed by Marxist ideologies forced Western governments to expand social safety nets to protect workers from the unpredictable but inevitable booms and busts of the capitalist economy. After the Berlin Wall fell, many celebrated the triumph of the West, consigning socialist ideas to the dustbin of history. But for all its faults, state socialism provided an important foil for capitalism. It was in response to a global discourse of social and economic rights, a discourse that appealed not only to the progressive populations of Africa, Asia, and Latin America, but also to many men and women in Western Europe and North America, that politicians agreed to improve working conditions for wage laborers, as well as to create social programs for children, the poor, the elderly, the sick, and the disabled, mitigating exploitation and the growth of income inequality. Although there are, were important antecedents in the 1980s, once state socialism collapsed, capitalism shook off the constraints of market regulation and income redistribution. Without the looming threat of a rival superpower, the last 30 years of global neoliberalism have witnessed a rapid shriveling of social programs that protect citizens from cyclical instability and financial crises and reduce the vast inequality of economic outcomes between those at the top and those at the bottom of the income distribution. For much of the 20th century, Western capitalist countries also endeavored to outdo the East European countries in terms of women's rights, fueling progressive social change. For example, the state socialists in the USSR and Eastern Europe were so successful at giving women economic opportunities outside the home that initially, for the two decades after the end of World War II, 
Women's wage work was conflated with the evils of communism. The American way of life meant male breadwinners and female homemakers. But slowly, socialist championing of women's emancipation began to chip away at the Leave it to Beaver ideal. The Soviet launch of Sputnik in 1957 spurred American leaders to rethink the costs of maintaining traditional gender roles. They feared the state socialists enjoyed an advantage in technological development and why women have better sex under socialism. Wayne in Redding, California, listening on KFOI. Hey, Wayne, what's up? Hey, hi, Tom. Hey, Wayne. I propose a solution that my grandmother told me back all the way back in 1972 during the Nixon administration. She said at that time that the greatest threat to democracy is inherited wealth. And for decades, I didn't really understand what she meant mm-hmm. until basically our current crisis. I would argue that basically three things have to happen. One, we basically have to create an estate tax where we're taxing assets on a by-decade basis. And I would to basically cut the billionaires back down to being merely wealthy instead of masters of the universe. And then apply antitrust and too-big-to-fail legislation to corporations. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you, Wayne. I started a couple of websites, uh, nobillionaires.com, net and org, as I recall, and I'm not sure if any of them are still up now. But, uh, you know, basically, if you can't live on $999 million, then you've got a problem. And this is what Teddy Roosevelt did. I mean, we've had inheritance taxes, substantial inheritance taxes, as high as 50% in this country, and they do in many other parts of the world. It's, it's way, way, way down now. And I absolutely agree. And I think I would add to that that we should add a wealth tax as well. Wayne, thanks. Uh, Excellent points all. Tyrone in New York City. Hey, Tyrone, what's up? Hey, how you doing? I haven't talked to you in a while. Thanks for calling. Uh, Thanks for taking my call. We got to stop looking for the quick fix. We're Mm. we're up against a major foe, man, in in big money interest. They're not looking to give up their power for nothing because if they have it, they would rather destroy this country before they turn over their power to a bunch of what they may consider savages. Yeah, the rabble, as John Adams used to call us. Yes. So now they have all of this power, all of this money, and they're using it very strategically because they are pitting us against each other so that they can keep their power. Mm. We we need to get smart on, stop falling for this race baiting, you know, the, the higher class thing, whereas, well, this person have more, you know, a little bit more money than me. Mm. You know they live, they live in a in a in a, in a um, one story house and they don't have they don't have that much more than me but I want to make sure that they don't do any better. You know we got to stop what you say crabs in the barrel. Mm-hmm. You know where where we just going against each other. We need to see the big picture instead of just fighting against each other for crumbs. They're gonna they're gonna continue to fight against um, health care for all, free college. Or they're going to continue to fight against that. We got to understand that this is what they do, you know. And this is not, I don't think this is just a a Republican and Democrat thing. I think it's a power thing. Whereas, you know, if I'm a Democrat and I have the power uh, and I can can maintain my power by causing divisions with somebody, or if I'm a Republican and I have the power and I can keep my power by causing divisions with people, I I may do that. 
Yeah, it's divide and conquer. It's very, it's very straightforward. It's the game that they've been playing forever in this country, and they're and they're playing it at the top of their game right now. And and you're absolutely right. These oligarchs, these billionaires, are not going to give up without a fight. And that's why they've seized control of our intellectual infrastructure. That's why they've seized control of our courts. That's why they've seized control of our uh, so much of our media. I mean, they are just going full tilt boogie, and it's ahistoric. I mean, or maybe it is historic. Maybe it's consistent with history that eventually societies collapse into into feudalism. It kind of belies the history of the last couple hundred years, and, but we're at a very, very consequential historic turning point. Tyrone, very well said. Thank you very much. Dion in Carl Junction, Missouri. Hey, Dion, what's up? Yeah, I, I think uh, what I had to say today would probably piggyback pretty well off uh, what, what that last caller had to say. Um, I took a lot of time off Facebook. I've actually been off for, for about four years, and I recently got back on. The reason I got off was because of the fake news that was on there then. But the people that have, have, were putting it on then are just almost insane now. Yeah. I, I, I read a post where someone was upset about the Covington Catholic school kids story because of something that Glenn Beck told him to be upset about. And when I try to confront him that, you know, Glenn Beck is not a good source of information, he literally said, you cannot change my mind about this. Yeah. And, like, what to do about billionaires, what to do about all this stuff. I, I think we really have to reach out to our friends and neighbors and get them to just see reality. And, and that's going to be really tough. I think they've been working on this for 20, 30 years to get people to believe something that's not true. 40 years. This, this, they long. rolled this out in 71 uh, as a consequence, or 72 really, as a consequence of the 1971 Powell Memo. That's where this all began. And during that decade of the 70s, you had the billionaires like Joe Coors and the Richard Mellon Scaife and the Koch brothers, all these billionaires pouring all this money into these think tanks. They created Heritage. They created Cato. They created the Federalist Society. They created Fox News, ultimately. They created this entire intellectual and media infrastructure, which now has brought us to where we're at. And the only counterbalance I see in the mainstream media are individuals like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, but there isn't an infrastructure anywhere near. No, you're absolutely right. There's a piece in Politico today about where is the left-wing version of the Federalist Society. There actually is one. It's called the Constitution Society or a word phrase like that, Constitution something. But they've got like one-tenth of the budget, the Federalist Society, because you don't have left-wing billionaires who are willing to fund infrastructure like the right-wing billionaires have been funding for literally 40 years. Deanna, I need to move along, but thank you for the call. And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.